quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners, and welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host for today, Paul Mueller, and with the new year just a few days away now, we're continuing our countdown by looking back at some of the best episodes from the Best Ever Show in 2023. Today, we'll focus on something that I know will make our host, Oxpatel, very happy, industrial. Industrial has risen up in the ranks of desirability when it comes to commercial assets in 2023, with Flex Industrial emerging as a new darling asset class. So we've pulled the best clips from some of the best episodes of 2023 that featured the best industrial and Flex investing advice ever. In this episode, we'll hear from Faraz Hamani, Joel Friedland, and Neil Walgren. You can find links to each of their episodes in the show notes. We'll start with someone who was featured on a previous Best of 2023 episode on self-storage, Faraz Hamani. Faraz is the owner of Pebble Ridge Capital, which, at the time of his recording in July, had 10 self-storage facilities across four different states. In his full episode, Faraz discussed how he manages storage facilities remotely with zero on-site staff through technology and automation. But in this excerpt, he explains that even though he's thrived in self-storage, he's in the process of expanding into the best-kept secret in real estate, Flex Industrial. I'll let Ash and Faraz take it from here. Now you're pivoting into another asset class. What is that? Once of pivoting, we're just adding more stuff. We're looking for more and more things to do. One of the things we found very compelling is this asset class of flex industrial. All that really means is you've got a big 60,000 square foot warehouse, let's say, or a bunch of buildings that add up to 60 to 70,000 square feet. And you chop them up into small suites. I'm talking 1,500 to 2,000 square feet of warehouse space. Here's the problem we're addressing. If you're a small-time contractor, plumber, electrician, whatever it might be, you want to rent warehouse space, there is virtually no product available at just 1,500 square feet. Warehouses are traditionally 10, 20, 30, 40,000 square feet. You don't need all that space as a small business owner. Not only that, the places that are smaller, older warehouses are typically older product. A lot of that was built in the 80s and 90s. We're seeing decreasing supply. That's a phenomenon we're not seeing in a lot of other asset classes. Multifamily, you go drive around the major metros, there's new buildings being put up everywhere. This asset class is typically being bought, repurposed, redeveloped, gentrified into something else. You have a diminishing supply. You have more small businesses than ever that are in need of space. You have more contractors and electricians and home services than ever before, especially in growing areas that need space. Not only that, if you're a business in need of space, you have a few choices. You can rent an office, you can rent a retail spot, or you can rent one of our spots. I'm saying it's not limited to industrial tenants. We have dance studios, churches, ghost kitchens, Amazon sellers that just need some space. They just need some space that's not their house. And this is the lowest cost option for a business in need of space. To illustrate that for the best ever listeners, flex space is typically you have a man door in the front and potentially a bay door in the back and or the front. So like you said, a landscaper that needs a place to securely store his or her equipment, a window tint shop, we've had churches, kitchens. So really in your average size flex is what, about 2,000 square feet? Just about, yeah. Okay. So imagine just a 2,000 square foot shell where each tenant that comes in can basically start over, move a wall if they want more office, more retail, more warehouse, 
or if they want all warehouse. The landscaper doesn't need office or may not need any retail or any customer exposure. They just need four walls to securely store equipment. But then we've had churches where they come in and they want it to look like an inviting space, nice flooring, nice walls, nice lighting. Good. The question that I have for you, if you look at price per square foot on storage versus flex, how does that add up? Price per square foot on buildings? of being able to rent out. Rent. Of course, the answer varies market to market, but I'll put it this way. I'm living in Houston, Texas. When it comes to flex space, we're doing ground up developments. We're building new flex space. So I could speak on my market here in Houston. The price points we've seen in some places like Stafford, Texas, or Missouri City, Texas, some of the suburbs near me, they're renting at $24 a square foot a year. That's the high end. On average, we're leasing our projects $18, $19 a square foot a year. Storage, especially in a city like Houston, here's the thing. Storage is very oversupplied in a lot of cities. You have tons of tons of competition. This is an asset class that's now institutionalized and been very mature. And that drives down prices. It's a race to the bottom. Storage rents in Houston might be closer to a square foot a year. And you have a much less sticky customer in storage. That's kind of the gift and the curse sometimes of storage. Customer comes in on a month-to-month lease, which is great for all the reasons we talked about, but they may leave in three months. You have sticky, easy-to-manage business customers on triple net leases, which is also very important. They're covering your expenses. They're covering your taxes. They're covering your insurance. Typically paying a higher rent, not wanting to leave. And there's a shortage of this stuff. We can't build this fast enough in some of our markets. What's the ideal size of a flex space, including ceiling height? It varies. And we go back and forth on this a lot as a team. In our mind, there's no ideal suite size. We like to stay on the smaller side, 1,500 to 2,000 square foot suites, sometimes up to 2,500, because that means that tenants always don't care about dollar per square foot. They're like, tell me what the check I'm cutting you is every month. How much is my rent? The smaller spaces means a smaller rent. So you typically lower your rent. The lower the price point, it's a lower barrier to entry to get in. We feel like there's other products out there that are building 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 square feet suites, and they serve a typical need. We found our niche in these smaller spaces. There's a huge array of people that come in. And to answer your other questions, typically a 20 to 22 ceiling, 14 foot dock high doors. Again, these are small customers. If somebody's coming in with hundreds of pallets of inventory, they're probably too mature for your flex space. They're probably going to a warehouse. These are going to be light use cases. They don't need all the bells and whistles that a big industrial tenant has. Basics, 20-foot ceilings, 14-foot door, clear spin. The inside is a shell. We don't even paint the walls, concrete floors. It's a blank canvas. Like you said, here's four walls. You do what you need to do with it. How much of the inside is conditioned space? As an air-conditioned? Air, heat. In a, let's say, a 2,000-square-foot space, what we're typically giving you is about a 200-square-foot office, a small bathroom, like equivalent of a half-bathroom, Above the office, the office is maybe 10 feet high. And remember, we have a 20-foot space. So above the office, we'll reinforce what's called a mezzanine layer. So it's like basically your office is two stories. You can go up the stairs, and then there's a second office. We'll air condition all that office space. So if you want to bring your clients in there, you need to sit in there and crunch numbers or do whatever it is, you have an air-conditioned space for that. Your warehouse, not air-conditioned. Insulated to make sure it doesn't get too hot or too cold, not air-conditioned. Very basic product. That's the other thing we love about it. This is a basic product that does not need a ton of bells and whistles for it to lease and fly off the shelves. Yeah. And the benefit is you have business owners that are your tenants and they will often go in there and improve your space on their dime. Any stories where people have drastically improved one of these flex spaces? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen spots where it was like a jujitsu gym and then they ended up leaving because they outgrew the space. 
but they left behind mirrors across every single wall, like something a gym would normally have. There's this company, it's called Big Ass Fans. Sometimes they're in some gyms, these really, really massive fans. They installed one of those in the warehouse space to keep things cool, which is absolute decor. They made the office space incredible, waiting area, lounges, and they left the space. And it wasn't that hard for that landlord to say, this is basically a gym. Hey, if anyone needs a turnkey gym location, come in and go ahead and make it. So we've seen some cool, interesting uses for what people do with that space. We saw one where it was a ghost kitchen and the guy just left all his equipment behind. He's like, I can't move it. I'm upgrading anyways. So you had massive freezers, iron stove tops. It was a full-blown ready-to-go ghost kitchen. A lot of cool improvements that tenants will make on their own dime that you get to benefit from. Yeah, it's the equivalent of having an apartment tenant remodel the bathroom, remodel the kitchen, add granite countertops which never happens. So that's one of the benefits of commercial real estate. That's great. Are you buying existing flex spaces or are you just building? Today we're building, but absolutely. We're looking at applying the same principles of acquisitions that we have in storage over to flex space as well. And looking to buy existing assets that we can add some value to, whether it's driving rents or improving the curb appeal of the building. But we know there's a big shortage of supply. We know there's a product we can build at a relatively attractive price. So we're doing a ton of development of this product as well. Yeah. And this is not that big of a jump from people coming from the self-storage asset class. What's your advice to somebody that has been in self-storage for so long and they're also experiencing the increased competition? What's your advice for them to get into Flex? If you can do well in storage, you'll do well in Flex. Storage is a lot harder operationally than most other asset classes because you nailed it. One, you don't have a commercial tenant. You have a regular customer. And by the way, you probably have 200 of them at a given location. Regular customers, you're going to deal with regular people problems. Hey, I'm late on my payment, or I'm going to be rude, or I'm going to cuss out your customer service rep, or I'm going to show up to the facility drunk and drive my car in U-Haul and nick the side of your building. And by the way, all true stories. These aren't hypotheticals. These are things we've experienced. And I have a, a list of 120 horror stories and stories that we've had. You move over to Flex, you're not dealing with professionals. You're dealing with businesses. You're dealing with maybe 15 of them rather than 200 of them. They're on triple net leases, meaning that, oh man, my taxes went up this year. It's okay. It's your tenant's job to cover that. If you can nail it in storage, you will be just fine. In fact, you'll be like, why didn't I do this sooner in a triple net lease commercial asset class like FlexSpace? But just make sure you know what you're doing. You know your underwriting. You understand it before you jump in head first. Don't have too much of a shiny object syndrome. But if you're a storage operator, there's not much harder than that in terms of operations. You'll be just yeah, fine. Yeah. And I would say buy before you build. So buy an existing oh, yeah. facility. So you learn all the nuances, ground up development, do that once you're comfortable with managing existing flex spaces. Our next guest is Joel Friedland. He's the principal at Britt Properties, which is an industrial real estate investing firm based in Chicago, Illinois. As of his March recording with our host, Slocum Reed, Britt Properties owned 15 industrial buildings with an aggregate value of approximately $50 million. In this excerpt, Joel explains why Chicago is the best industrial area in the country why he focuses primarily on small, infill, class B and C industrial, and how sticky tenants facilitate long-term holdings. But Chicago is the best industrial area in the country. And let me tell you why. There's 1.3 billion square feet of industrial. There's 20,000 industrial companies. There's 8,000 industrial buildings. There's so much depth to our market that people can make millions or billions of dollars in industrial real estate just in Chicago. The reason that Chicago is so popular with industrial companies, manufacturers and distributors, 
is because it's where rail meets in the middle of the country. And that's how products are distributed through rail and through trucking. It's the middle of the trucking lane in the United States. And it's also something that people don't think about a lot, a place where we have great natural water with Lake Michigan. So all of these things combined with the size of the market, the depth of the market, every company of any size has to be here. And the big question is, where do they want to be in the market? And we work in an area that we call infill, which is either in the city, close to the city, or very close to O'Hare Airport. There are only two kinds of industrial real estate. There's class B and C, which fit together, which are older, smaller buildings. And then there's class A, which are these gigantic Amazon-type warehouses, Wayfair. We focus only on the infill, smaller B and C. And what's great about it is no one's building any more of those ever. It's a market that is today what it was 10 years ago and what it will be 10 years from now. And when a building comes on the market for sale, for example, 30,000 square feet, we'll get five, six, seven offers. Joe, why is it that that's not being built anymore? Is it simply because of scale? There's no land in the infill sections of town. It's already all built out. And the cost of building an industrial building would be $220 a square foot to build a 20,000 foot building. And what we're able to buy and sell these buildings for is in the $100 range. So our replacement cost is double what the cost is of the existing buildings. So no one's going to build a $220 per square foot building, knowing that the market's somewhere about half of that for the building next door that's got the same utility. Because the B and C buildings don't need to have the same high ceilings. They call it high cube. The class A buildings, which are precast concrete, you see them with all the truck docks, And the offices in the corners, whenever you drive up and down the tollways of any major city, those are buildings that institutions generally own, and we don't compete with them. I'd say the big reason we don't compete with them is because they're willing to take a 5% cap rate, and that would be intolerable to us. We look for an 8% yield minimum on the deals that we own. Taking this back to the most fundamental of economics, Joel, your inventory, your supply is fixed. I have an idea of what you're going to say, but in order to understand the asset class and your specialization, I do have to ask, what does demand for these B and C industrial spaces look like right now in the infill? Okay. So there are two types of buyers. One type of buyer is like us. We're the investor buyer. But the unique thing about our niche in the BNC industrial is what I would call the user strategy. When one of our tenants moves out of one of our buildings, we do better selling it to a user than we would have if we had sold the building occupied on a cap rate. And let me explain why. For an industrial manufacturing company, a building is a tool for their business. So for example, we have a company that is one of our tenants. They were on the TV show Shark Tank in year one. It's called Element Bars. The owner of the company is a fellow named Jonathan Miller. If you watch season one, you'll be very entertained by how he did on Shark Tank, talking to Kevin and to Robert and all those people. He actually got a deal, but 
it ended up not getting finalized, which happens a lot on Shark Tank. It looks like they make a deal, but then the devil's in the details with the paperwork. So Jonathan owns this company and he makes protein bars. And he started out in Chicago and built the business from 50000 a year to where he's at today, which is $12 million of revenue a year. A few years ago, he was in a building in the city that was too small for him. So he went and leased another building not too far away. So now he was in two facilities that were not together. And he came to the conclusion that he needed to consolidate and be in one building. So he looked around for a building to buy and he looked and he looked and he couldn't find anything and he got frustrated. And finally, he came to our building and I met him and he said, Joel, I really don't want to lease your building. I want to buy it. And I said, Jonathan, I don't want to sell it. We are long-term holders. And he said, well, if I have to be a tenant, I'll be a tenant, but I want you to know that my number one priority is to buy a building. If I were in a situation where I had the same building that he leased and I put it on the market for sale, I would probably have three or four showings in the first week and probably all of them would make offers. I have something I call the punch in the face theory. When a user comes to see a building and it's in the right location and it's got the right specifications, the right truck docks, the right ceiling height, that user wants that building so badly that I tell my mentees when I train people in the business, I say, if someone wants a building badly enough, you could punch them in the face and they'd say, Thank you so much for that punch. Now, how much do I have to pay for the building? Joel, everything you're saying here makes sense, except that I am still working on figuring out your strategy. Help me draw some lines here. You're primarily buy and hold. I know that you syndicate and that when you have a vacancy, is it your first option to look to sell to a buyer who's going to operate a business in that space? And if you don't get the buyer you want, then you look to lease it? No, it's the exact opposite of that. So we're long-term holders. And our first choice is always to renew the lease with the tenant that's in the building. Of course. Nine out of 10 of our tenants renew because they're what we call sticky tenants. They are usually manufacturers or assembling companies, and they have a lot of employees. It would be extremely difficult for them to replace the employees. So they don't want to move away from where they're at. So The key is employment. But the second thing is they have machines that are bolted to the ground and they sometimes have 15 or 20 different machines and they don't want to move those. It's so expensive to hire a machinery mover to take those. Often the machines can get literally ruined by moving them. Sometimes they're these precision machines. They need to stay where they're at. So our tenants are incredibly sticky. Nine out of 10 of our leases renew. When a tenant doesn't stay, we put it on the market for sale or for lease. We don't put on an asking price for sale though, because if we find a neighbor, the building is worth 30 to 40% more to that neighbor than it would be to anybody else. Because it would be like Jonathan Miller when he needed that second facility, when the element bars grew and he didn't have enough space, he went out and he leased another building. The market is really tough. It's hard to find deals right now. So users who want to buy their own building are struggling like Jonathan did. They can't find them. We don't push selling. We push leasing. But if the building sits vacant for a few months, 
because vacancy is what kills us. If someone makes an offer that we can't refuse, we will sell. So our average hold period is seven years, but we have one building in particular that we've owned for 30 years. And we keep renewing the same tenant. The tenant is great. It's called Feed My Starving Children. It's a not-for-profit that raises $65 million a year. And church and school groups come in and pack food that's then delivered to starving children around the world that are discovered by missionaries that they send out all over to Africa and all over Asia. And every time their lease comes up, they renew. Because what they have in the back is they have what they call packing stations. And to move that would be very expensive. Plus, we have one other thing is we've got parking. The first three rules of industrial real estate are parking, parking, and parking. Because as companies grow, they move into a building and they anticipate they're going to need 30 parking spaces. As they grow, they add offices and then they add more people working in the manufacturing area. And now they need 40 or 50 spaces. And if we don't have enough parking, they have to leave. So our main strategy is to buy buildings with tremendous parking, good loading docks, great locations, and then we try to keep them. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Finally, our last featured guest is Neil Walgren. Neil is a partner at Mag Capital Partners, which focuses on triple net leased industrial properties, lease structures, and tenants. In his full episode, which aired back in February, Neil discussed the benefits and nuances of triple net leases. In this excerpt, Neil discusses those same benefits, along with what his firm looks for in both industrial assets and tenants, and how investors can pivot from multifamily to industrial. Industrial is interesting. There's a lot less operational focus on the real estate and a lot more focus on both the strength of the lease and the quality of your tenant. So almost all of these properties have a single tenant and long-term, typically 15, 20-year absolute triple net leases. So those two become the primary focus as opposed to doing capital improvements and managing occupancy and vacancy rates that are more prevalent in the multifamily world. And you don't need a leasing agent and you don't need a maintenance person. And a property manager. <laughs> All self-managed, yeah. <laughs> Trust me, like the first time you go on a triple net deal and realize 100% of your expenses are taken care of directly by your tenant, it's a completely refreshing new way to look at what real estate can look like. Yeah, funny story. My very first property a dozen years ago was a mixed-use building. A store had kind of a net lease. College kids were destroying my apartments above. <laughs> I, I saw the store owner 
replacing all the HVAC units in my building on their dime. <laughs> I, I, right? I kind of freaked out. I, I didn't know how much <laughs> this was going to cost me. So I go downstairs and I asked the storm, like, hey, what's going on? He's like, yeah, our AC went out. So I just replaced the entire HVAC unit. And I'm like, damn, all right. And as I'm leaving, he asks me if he can remodel the bathroom. I'm like, oh my God, here I am unclogging a tenant's toilet upstairs. And this, yeah, so that I learned that early on commercial yep. tenants improve your space. Neil, you talked about single tenants. Now, how do you qualify that single tenant? Do you make sure that they have multiple locations? Do you look at their financials? How long have they been in business? Is it a mom and pop operator? Great questions there. That single tenant. That variable is frightening to some folks because your vacancy and occupancy become more binary. You're either fully leased or 0% leased. However, most of these inbound when you're buying the properties typically will have a tenant in place. And now you have an opportunity really to vet out and understand the strength of what we call tenant credit. So that, that can range a huge amount of, of specialties will focus on that. You have publicly traded tenants. You're going to be your Amazons and your Ford or whatever. Those are going to have very public evaluation on what that credit looks like. And you have a pretty objective view on what your confidence is that your tenant like that will pay rent. Conversely, you have private credit tenants, and those are typically what we work with. So on those, we actually have a full underwriting credit team in-house. We will work typically two to three months with that tenant. We look at historical financial statements. P&Ls, balance sheets. We look at coverage ratios and their ability to cover their both fixed costs and operational costs. We also look at what kind of debt load does that company have? Are they highly leveraged? Is that interest rate environment that's increasing is going to impact their ability to stay in business? Or do they have really low debt where they could probably weather a financial recession or storm and still come out on the other side? So from a scope standpoint, you mentioned, are they mom and pop or not? On our last fund, 75 or 80% of our tenants did over $100 million a year in revenue. So these are not mom and pop shops for the most part. Most of them have been around 50, 60, 70 years or more and employ a decent amount of people and have that operational history. Will the private tenants open up their books to you? They have to. Really, we would be taking on an unknown amount of risk if we weren't able to see what their financials look like. So sometimes we get them sanitized or a summary level because they want to keep some of that industry corporate advantage. We understand that. But ultimately, we need to make sure that they, frankly, have the revenue and consistency and EBITDA that we know that they can comfortably cover their rent obligation. And I'm assuming you currently buy to hold long-term, or do you dispose of assets as well? Yeah. Like any industry, you're going to have a, a little bit of a mix of both. In general, we have stabilized assets where the way I consider that, you have a super strong tenant. They're in place. Your lease is typically 15, 20 years in term. And on those, I might hold five, six, seven years. And that's going to allow me to produce good yield. There's rent bumps built into the lease. So every year, I know with a high degree of certainty, my cash flow is increasing. And then when I go to sell, I still got maybe 13, 15 years left of term on that lease. There's a lot of buyers still interested in that. So when the next buyer buys the building, they assume that lease and they assume the remaining term on there. So conversely, we're able to add value sometimes. Sometimes we'll buy a property with sometimes multiple leases and we're able to consolidate them under a single triple net lease. When we do that, that's really our industry's equivalent of a value add. So at that point, we produced a decent lift 
in terms of the final value of that property. And we might hold that for a shorter amount of time to try to capture that value quicker. Now, historically, having those 15, 20-year leases has been very beneficial because the next buyer has that security that they're buying. Today, with prices going up, inflation, what are your thoughts on that? We now look for properties that have expiring leases more so than multiple lease renewals because the rents haven't been raised. They're not in line with the current market rents. So isn't it a detriment to have such a long-term lease with renewals built in? Great question. Several factors to look at, right? The first is what are those renewals? Are those renewals keeping up with inflation? Are they keeping up with historic inflation? Most of these are long-term plays. Historically, we would look for 2% annual bumps. Now we're closer to about 25 or 3% based on some of the above average inflation we're seeing. However, something important to look at is even if we're, say, losing out to inflation from a rent perspective, we are insulated from corresponding increases in expenses. So on a triple net lease, if my insurance goes up, if my building maintenance costs go up, which they do, right? If my property taxes go up, all those things will continue to rise, but those are paid directly by my tenant. So I'm protected from the inflationary effects of my expenses, but only benefit from the rent bumps built into my, my revenue. So it's a much more predictable model that, frankly, that rent more directly correlates to NOI compared to rent minus expenses in a more traditional investment type. Thank you for that. So the only variable that you really contend <clears throat> with is your debt structure. What kind of debt goes on these properties typically? We're typically putting in fixed rate debt. So ultimately that gives us a cash flow yield spread that effectively is the difference between rent and our fixed rate debt. So we lock in those variables. So now we can hold that property long-term and we know with a high degree of certainty what I'm going to be able to distribute out to our LPs. Ultimately, our debt is going to be fixed rate for five to seven years, typically a 10-year term in today's environment. Obviously, everything shifts and moves pretty regularly, but we're seeing five to 6% interest rates in that type of debt. In regards to location, what's the most important? Is it still last mile delivery? Is it near interstates, near a workforce, near an airport? Yeah, it's really your location is important, but in, in a different way. We don't really care about traffic count. I don't care how good the schools are. Frankly, I don't even care if there's crime in the area. That's where industrial is, right? They're going to be not the nicest part of town. They're not going to be in areas you probably want to live, but instead they're going to be areas with good basis on the land. More important, good access to a labor force. So typically they're going to be in secondary or tertiary cities or what I call commutable primary cities where they'll be far enough out where they can still get that labor force required for the operations for that company. How important is proximity to interstates? I would say decent. Most of these tenants are manufacturers. They're making products. They're either going to get those typically nationwide to their customers through primarily trucking, sometimes rail, sometimes a combination of the two. But I would say almost always you're going to want a decent highway access for the outbound and inbound pieces of those businesses. Now, when you get into 50, 100,000, couple hundred thousand square foot, is that still manufacturing or is that more distribution logistics? So most of our properties do a combination of them. So our average building size that we're buying is typically one to 200,000 square feet. And that's going to have some shipping and receiving. That's going to have typically some storage in there. 
the majority of it's going to be manufacturing. Typically 10 to 20% will be kind of office admin area. And then those buildings, it's really interesting. They're typically on an abundance of land because they are more secondary tertiary. So sometimes you'll see a primary building that was built maybe 40 years ago, and then they needed more space, added another one, and then another one. So you get these kind of patchwork quilt looking properties. But at the end of the day, you still have a single tenant leasing them all out. And then Really, they've configured that property in a way that works for them. So in that fashion, we're able to have, I hate the term sticky tenant, but it kind of is. You have a tenant who's really gotten comfortable with that space, built their operations around it, and frankly, looking for that same long-term relationship we are as landlords. How hard is it to find a 200,000 square foot industrial tenant? (laughs) To lease up a new one? It depends, right? I would say the more, a lot has to do with the configuration of your building. If your building is has wide open spaces, high ceilings, some shipping and receiving and high bay truck doors, you can fit almost any sort of manufacturing operation in there. So you're going to have a pretty easy, typically six to 12 month leasing period, but you should be able to get someone in fairly confidently. The more special use your building is, like any other asset class, high-end pharmaceutical buildings. For example, we looked at a Carvana building once. You've seen those. It looks like a... Yeah. a vehicular vending machine. Yeah. And I'm like, what if we lost this tenant? What would we do with this? You know, it's just like, I don't know. So those are examples of how you can mitigate that releasing risk should the need ever occur. Now let's think about some of the smaller investors, maybe some of our best ever listeners that want to pivot into industrial. They're looking at maybe a flex space warehouse that's 10 to 50,000 square feet. What should they look for? That's a great question. When you start getting into flux industrial, you're going to look at a lot more of the same factors as, say, a multi-tenant retail bill. You're going to look at TIs. You might have either a double net or maybe a limited triple net lease, but you're typically, as the owner, going to be responsible for the exterior and outside areas on that building, and you're going to have some occupancy. In my last firm, we bought a large industrial park in Houston that had 114 different tenants, I mean, it was massive. So we had two full-time property managers. And on those, it was much more of a, you know, really the same mindset as buying a multi-tenant retail space. So for a newer investor, you can have large industrial space or something small that might have two or three properties. Just bear in mind, those smaller buildings are usually going to have more smaller credit tenants. You're going to have mom and pop tenants that have weaker credit. And one thing that they can do to reinforce the security on those especially in this model, is to ask for personal guarantees from the owner of those companies. That's a way to provide some backing or ask for a larger security deposit going in to say, hey, instead of the usual one month, your credit's kind of small. You guys only do maybe a mill or two of a year in revenue. So I might ask for six or 12 months of security deposit to kind of de-risk some of that risk that comes from having a smaller tenant there. Neil, do you do a lot of sale leasebacks? We do, yeah. Probably about ex- 70%. Interesting. Can you explain the benefits of that and exactly what it is to our best ever listeners? Yeah. So the fundamental core of a sale leaseback is rather than buy a stabilized property on the market where you are buying the property and assuming the in-place lease with the in-place tenant, the leaseback is where you are buying the property from an owner-occupant. So usually what happens is you have a manufacturing company that owns the warehouse they operate out of. They're looking for an alternate source of capital, typically to grow their business or pay down debt. So they will look to potentially 
source that capital from the sale of that building and the simultaneous lease back. And so we will execute both a purchase agreement and then also a lease agreement simultaneously in those operations. And it's a great point. It's very important to discern this. So oftentimes business owners will sell their property, lease it back, like you said, because they need the capital for something, or a lot of times they are positioning their company for a sale. They want to reduce debt, offload the real estate. How do you discern if they truly need the capital or if they're doing a pump and dump? If they yeah. signed a, a brand new 10-year lease, maybe a five-year lease, just so they can get that high dollar amount and at the end of five years, not renew and good luck. Yeah. And that is the charter of our credit guys. So they come in and they need to understand the why behind it. And a lot of these guys, typically a lot of our sellers will have private equity backers. Usually there's some background activity going on there with a private equity roll-up acquisition. Often those groups are much more interested in growing the operating company, less interested in being real estate owners. So we will look at both the terms of the sale and leaseback, and we'll look at where's this money going, like you said. So I would say nine times out of 10, that money is going to pay down debt, long-term debt revolver that's coming due. And that's a way for them to deleverage debt that stays on their balance sheet. Now on their balance sheet, they've significantly reduced their amount of corporate debt and in return, taken on a more conventional rental obligation through that long-term lease, which frankly makes their balance sheet more healthy and attractive for sourcing other types of business activities. You sound like you've been in this industry for 20 years. And it's only been <laughs> seven, right? Eight, seven, eight? Good yeah. for you, man. You're a wealth uh, of knowledge. That's it for today, best ever listeners. Thanks as always for listening. I hope you enjoyed this roundup of some of our favorite best ever clips from 2023 on industrial real estate. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for the final installment in our best of 2023 series. Until then, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review, share it with someone you think could find some value in it. Also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.